Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I think we'll make a start. Welcome to the National Library. I'm Amelia McKenzie, Assistant Director General of Collections Management here in the library, and I will be kicking us off tonight. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for the land we now are privileged to call home and where we meet tonight. It's terrific to see so many here for our first Griffith Review conversation this year. We're very pleased to continue this collaboration with Griffith Review and with founding editor Julianne Schultz, as we can always rely on these events to highlight current issues of great significance. The Griffith Review began publication in 2003, and since then it has set the agenda for current affairs discussion through its themed editions, which consistently surprise, stimulate, and educate us. Tonight's conversation will focus on edition number 59, The Commonwealth Now, I should say Commonwealth Now, which explores the identities, challenges, and future of the Commonwealth of Nations. Now, I have here to make an admission. I loved reading these essays, and it wasn't just because I was born in Britain. It was Commonwealth Day yesterday. Uh, I actually, I only know that because Fran Kelly mentioned it this morning. The Gold Coast Commonwealth Games start next month, and yes, I've been watching The Crown. <laughs> the reason I loved the essays was because it seemed to me that every essay contained a new, relevant, and necessary perspective on, Austra on Australia's history and place in the world. And they gave us an always interesting and sometimes startling view of what the world actually means in that context. So we're very lucky tonight to be joined by Professor Schultz and contributing authors, Professor Jenny Hocking, Dr. Graham Smith, as well as Professor Alan Gingell. I will now hand over to Julianne to steer from here. So would you please join me in welcoming our guests to the National Library? Thank you, Amelia, and um, uh, it's great to be here again for one of these, these sessions. I, I too, really uh, value doing these, uh, having these conversations here at the National Library. As I was saying to the panellists earlier, there's always a, a higher calibre of, of audience in Canberra, I find. <laughs> we can have a sort of more free-ranging conversation than sometimes happens in, in some of the events we do. Not that they're not good, but they're just mm. always very special, the Canberra ones. Um, as uh, Amelia mentioned, uh, we, we're in that Commonwealth Day zone, um, which is probably a day that has otherwise passed most of us by. Um, I've been reminded of, of Commonwealth Day partly because um, of one of the contributors in this, in this collection is uh, Selena Tusitana Marsh, mm -hmm. who's the Poet Laureate in New Zealand. And she was commissioned a few years ago to write a poem for Commonwealth Day and to present it in Westminster Abbey to the Queen and assembled dignitaries from all the Commonwealth countries. 
and the piece she's written as, uh, about this challenge of writing a non-political poem which took in the whole Commonwealth was not more than three minutes long um, and was on the theme of unity um, is, is itself a hilarious um, description of the process of <laughs> this sort of Samoan you know, New Zealand exchange with, with the British royals, which in many ways sort of captured some of the tensions that are there in, in, this, uh, in this strange thing that is the Commonwealth. So joining us for this discussion today is uh, Professor Alan Gingell, who I'm sure is known to, 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 to most of you. Um, Alan has had a most distinguished career in almost every job that's possible in foreign affairs in, in this country, um, in, and including setting up the uh, Lowy Institute. Um, his most recent book um, is called uh, Fear of Abandonment, and I will do a plug for that, as well as for the uh, Griffith Review. Um, and we're delighted that Alan's been able to join us today. Um, Jenny Hocking, Professor Jenny Hocking, um, is also, I'm sure, known to, to most of you as, uh, as a very distinguished historian, um, particularly of the Labor Party and um, Whit uh, Gough Whitlam and, and so on, and her, her very active role in recent times, um, which has had a very strong relationship with this issue, has been her campaign, her legal battles, really, to get uh, correspondence between the palace, the palace and uh, the Governor-General released as part of her ongoing investigations into the process of the dismissal in 1975. And our third speaker is uh, Dr. Graham Davidson. Uh, Graham, Graham is relatively younger and less known, possibly less known to, uh, um, to Graham Smith, sorry, um, less known to, to all of you, but uh, Graham is a very erudite scholar of things Chinese and things in the Pacific. Um, and he, has, uh, he works now at the Australian National University, um, where he's a research fellow in the Department of Pacific Affairs. Um, and his essay in this, um, in this collection is a wonderful evocation of the sort of rising Chinese empire in PNG and how the legacy of the Commonwealth plays out. So please welcome our, our speakers. Now, I'd like to start by quoting back to you, Alan, a thing you wrote a few years ago, maybe a decade or more ago, um, in which you said, the Commonwealth and Chogham um, is at any measure, by any measure, the most useless international institution to which any Australian senior political leader must commit time and energy. You say you still stand by that assessment of the Commonwealth, and I'm just wondering what, you, what, what is the relevance, if there is any, of the Commonwealth these days? Uh, well, I'm, I'm sort of slightly changing my <laughs> mind on this for reasons I'll come back to, not because you invited me and thank you to sit on this, uh, <laughs> on this panel. At the, at the uh, time that I uh, wrote that, it was, uh, which was uh, yeah, you know, a decade and a half ago, it was, it was certainly true. Um, I, I began my life as an enthusiastic imperialist, as a young... Um, as a young uh, school, school kid seduced by the free bags of lollies that the Mothers Club <laughs> used to give away at Ashburton State School on Empire Day, Empire which, Day. It, which was, of course, Queen Victoria's birthday, the 24th of, um, of, uh, of uh, May. <laughs> but my sort of the, the, the romance began to, uh, to fade um, uh, over time. And by the time I came to Canberra in, um, in 1960, Nine, uh, it, I was very conscious that even then the Commonwealth was taking up more of the time and attention of Australian prime ministers and governments uh, than it 
uh, than it uh, than it should have done. And the reason was one that will only be really uh, appreciated, I think, by a Canberra audience. And that was the bureaucratic fact that the only international meeting that the Australian Prime Minister went to through the 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s were uh, uh, biennial meetings of uh, the Commonwealth Heads of Government. So there was an inbuilt um, uh, incentive in the bureaucracy uh, to focus on this because the Prime Minister wanted, you know, success and, uh, and uh, he wanted initiatives and uh, he wanted um, announceables and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and outcomes. Um, and that used to just infuriate me. And it <laughs> continued to infuriate me right up until the 1990s when, for a variety of reasons, other mm -hmm. um, institutions emerged, like the G20 and, the, uh, and APEC and so on, and prime ministers could begin to focus on other things. We can come back later to why I'm slightly mm. changing my mind about not the world's most useless international institution to which Australian leaders have to spend time and effort, but a slight feeling that there may be reasons for the Commonwealth that weren't there mm -hmm. uh, five years ago. Okay. We'll come back to that. Jenny, what, what's your sense about the, the relevance, the continuing relevance and legacy of, of the Commonwealth? Well, look, I, th I think that at the very establishment of the, the Commonwealth, there's a really profound political oxymoron, mm. um, I call it in the piece in Griffith Review, which is that on the one hand it's it's an expression of a post-empire reality and it's uh, purporting to create equal autonomous um, members, none uh, subordinate to the other is the wording, um, and yet at the same time it says that its common link is that all are united um, by a common allegiance to the Crown. And that, to me, sets up what becomes, um, I think, increasingly a problem in the way in which the Commonwealth sees itself and the way in which its constituent member parts see its relationship to the Commonwealth. And although that wording did change a decade or so later, nevertheless, that sort of lingering sense of um, imperial expectation and cultural um, set of uh, expectations of, of, of dominance of one over the sort of subordination of others, you can see reflected at particular points in the history of the Commonwealth. I mean, there's a wonderful example uh, in the recent biography of, of uh, Evett um, by John Murphy of, of, of Evett being very um, determined in the 1940s in those early conferences that set the groundwork for the, for the UN to have Australia have its own independent stand, its own independent voice. and. Um, Churchill later describing the, the Commonwealth as, as he saw it as a form of power block almost. Uh, uh, the, 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 the Commonwealth will be the third of the great powers and argued to Everett and others that that could only be fulfilled if it spoke as one voice. But of course the one voice it was expected to speak of <laughs> was, was, was the British voice. So there was always that built-in tension that I think muddled along for Australia without too much difficulty because of the simple fact that it intersected entirely with the long years of the Menzies and then post-Menzies coalition government. But we saw it really unsettled um, when the Whitlam government came to office in 1972. And of course, that's my area of study. And I have looked at uh, 
this um, relationship with Britain, of course, and more specifically with the Crown, to some to, in quite some detail over that period of time. I wouldn't say that the Commonwealth is in and of itself an example of those sorts of, of pressures on government, but, but it's more that it created the means through which lingering connections, um, colonial relics, as Whitlam called them, were able to be maintained. Mm -hmm. And they're certainly very similarly mirrored in the... Uh, in, in, in the discussions in Whitehall in relation to the Whitlam government, particularly the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and we can go into that mm. in more detail if you like mm. later, but, but certainly I think the lingering sense of imperialism and the expectation and cultural expectations, I think, uh, are very significant. And we can't underestimate the way in which that has actually held us back from moving forward to full independence as a republic. Mm. Okay, well, we'll come back to that as, as we go along. Graham, what's, what's your general take on this whole thing? Uh, well, uh, look, it has to be a general take because mm. I'm far from an expert mm. on, on the Commonwealth. Um, I, I guess I, I'd probably throw in a personal reflection in that I was, I was raised by my grandmother who, um, despite being Scottish, was a, a, an absolute lover of the royals. Mm. And so uh, as a very wee Ben, I was taken to, uh, to see the royals as they came to visit um, in Manly when I was a very, very small child. And we literally grew up in the Commonwealth. So as a child, I had this very emotional connection to the Commonwealth and almost an, an obliviousness to Asia, if you like. Mm. Um, so my mum had a copy of Woman's Day. Oh, sorry, my grandmother had a copy of Woman's Day always out. And it was a very different publication back mm. in the 70s mm. to uh, what it has sadly become now. Mm. And there was this uh, kind of visceral um, connection in a way that, was expressed whenever the Commonwealth Games came mm. around because mm. as a young boy, sport was what occupied 90% of my brain. Mm. Um, and the Commonwealth Games was actually bigger than the Olympics. Uh, and it's sort of weird to think back now. But that moment when Rob D. Costello, I think, won the marathon in Brisbane, mm. uh, for me, that was like the moment when the Commonwealth sort of exploded and then for some reason just gradually disappeared mm. from Australian consciousness mm. after that. Mm. Um, so I, it's it's a, but it still stays with me. It's a very strong emotional connection. But you kind of wonder where it went, and and I think to a large extent for Australians of my generation, it um, it went the way of us discovering where we were on the globe, mm. that we're an Asian nation and a Pacific nation, and really, you know, what happens over in uh, Britain isn't of great concern to us. That's interesting. I mean, I think that the other part of it is that Britain sort of lost interest um, yes. in, in us as well, when you know, so, and which sort of goes mm. a bit to mm. your fear of abandonment argument. But, but I think one of the reasons, well, actually, you've touched on two of the reasons that we decided to do this edition. I mean, the first being that the Commonwealth Games are about to happen on the Gold Coast. And when and Griffith University is one of the sponsors of those games. And so my Vice-Chancellor said, well, you know what? What are you going to do for Griffith's review? I, you know, as part of the, you know, as part of this thing. And I said, well, you know, I could do a thing on the Gold Coast. And he said, mm, maybe. Um, um, what, what about doing something on the Commonwealth? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. You know, like there's only 53 countries. You know, that means that I have to find writers from, you know, from a large number of those countries, which is what we have done. I mean, we've got writers from 25 countries. But the other thing which happens concurrently with that, of course, is the is the Brexit vote, and suddenly you've got this you've got this sort of um, change of British interest in reviving notions of empire um, in a way that would have been unimaginable at the time that you're talking about. So the whole Empire 2.0 thing sort of popped up again. But, but, but doesn't that, you know, exactly show the sort of imperial mindset that is implicit in this notion of Commonwealth? 
because you have that extraordinary situation, as you mentioned, where in 1973 um, Britain joins the European market, um, enormously detrimental to some particular pockets of our of our trade, particularly butter and dairy, um, even though we had a long lead into knowing that that was coming. But what I find fascinating is that we have a situation of Brexit too, and the immediate expectation, a sort of instantaneous response, is to turn to the old trading partners as if we can just Britain could just pick up where it left off. Well, we'll start again with opening up things to Australia. And this sense of being taken for granted by what is meant to be a post-imperial body, I think highlights just how that it, it really can never move past that because that's the very essence of its creation. And so when it's described as having as much relevant now, relevance now as it did when it was formed, I think, yes, that's precisely the problem. Mm. There has never been a coherent ration, rationale for its establishment other than that all nations are joined for their form, or were until relatively recently, formed by their post-colonial status. And it's not enough to sustain either a, a set of institutions, a set of, 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 of um, decision-making structures that take up such a vast amount of time and resources as you've written about, Alan, and I found your piece so persuasive you know, I'm completely sold just as you're moving away from it. <laughs> so were you surprised by the Brexit, by that, that harking back to empire that happened in, as in the wash-up to the Brexit vote? Me? Mm. I, I'm, you know, nothing, nothing surprised me uh, <laughs> after, um, uh, after Brexit. It, it was the most damaging decision taken by a Western government mm. in the past, uh, you know, 30 years. I think it weakens... Europe, it weakens the United Kingdom, and it weakens the transatlantic relationship mm. simul simultaneously. So they had to look around for for, uh, uh, for something. The fascinating thing for me, uh, uh, harking back to what Jenny said, I, I worked in the early 1990s for uh, Paul Keating as his foreign policy advisor, and uh, Paul was a reluctant attender of Commonwealth meetings, as you <laughs> might uh, su suspect. And um, he tried to persuade John Major that the best thing that the Brits could do was, would be to offer to host uh, Chogham every two years in London. Mm -hmm. That would be a you know, place and uh, people would uh, come there and it would be easier to manage and everyone could, mm -hmm. you know, rather than having to traipse off to Cyprus or wherever it was mm -hmm. that he didn't want to go that year. So, um, um, and Major was totally uninterested because the Commonwealth at that stage was sort of marginal mm. to, uh, to Britain's uh, interests. Mm. Um, suddenly, as they search around again for a global uh, role, um, they've, they've identified it, but I think the rest of us have moved along. Mm. It is interesting. So this year, the, the Chogham meeting is, is happening in London, um, and it's really the first time of an outing of the sort of the current new Commonwealth iteration, which is very much about a multilateral organisation, that is engaged with sustainability, equality, education, you know, a whole bunch of really, you know, good things. Um, I think Michael Wesley described them as fashionable fads, but in his, in his essay. Um, but it is interesting that that's happening back in London, and, and at the same time, the sort of question about the, the succession of leadership is up for grabs, in a sense. I mean, it's not because the Queen is still alive, but she inevitably won't live forever, um, and there's no automatic process that the, that, the, that the leadership of the, or the head of the Commonwealth is a, is the, is a member of the royal family. Um. Uh, 
but short of that, there's nothing which binds those particular uh, those particular countries. I mean, the, the the problem is with the Commonwealth, or one of the problems with the Commonwealth, is that you have all the uh, problems of large multilateral organisations, a lack of uh, focus, incoherence, but without the universalism which gives the United Nations some legitimacy. Mm -hmm. So you've got, got all the problems of the UN mm -hmm. and none of the residual mm -hmm. um, advantages. So, Graham, in your piece, you write about the uh, the Chinese in PNG sort of blaming the Commonwealth for the for the problems that they they encountered in that sort of growing trade and economic activities there. I mean, how do you see it in that sort of Pacific space? I mean, is there is there a legacy that is any of any value, or is it just something that's sort of another bit of the sort of arcane architecture? When they would get upset about the Commonwealth, it would generally be about things that you probably couldn't blame the Commonwealth for at all. Mm. Um, and then, in, in essence, they were conflating the Commonwealth with empire, which is a, a perfectly natural mm. mistake. Uh, and particularly what would get them riled up is that, um, as an imperial power, they hadn't done more to uh, make these countries, if to, to borrow a catchphrase mm. of these days, open for business. Mm. So institutions such as traditional land ownership were left in place in Papua New Guinea and, and throughout the Pacific. And the Chinese were simply nonplussed about, well, you know, surely you have, you know, well-defined property rights in, in mm. Britain and America, and, and um, which they often threw into the Commonwealth as well, and Australia. Um, you know, why didn't you just enforce them here? And, and mm. then it would be much easier to come here and, and mm. do business. Mm. Um, but they, they saw the Commonwealth, if you like, as something weak as well, in that um, they would look at the lawlessness and say, well, this is what happens when you... Uh, you know, you, you uh, mm. create a rule of rule of law and uh, you don't have kind of a, a strong system to uh, kind of keep the natives in check. Mm. Uh, and again, they would blame that on the Commonwealth. They'd say, well, look, you gave them this legal system and it's not working, so, you know, mm. what were you thinking? Mm. Mm. So, Jenny, I mean, that, that process that you write about, about with them extracting us from the Privy Council and so on, I mean, that sort of, that legacy of rule of law, um, I mean, it's been complicated, hasn't it? Oh, it's been enormously complicated, and um, it, it, it's, it's, in my view, still incomplete, mm. not in the sort of substantive ways that it was at the time that Whitlam was in, in office. But there's no doubt that there was real resistance from, um, from the UK for the sort of final extrication, if you like, of, of, of Australian independence. And... What is really staggering in the, in, in the records that I've looked at in relation to Whitlam's efforts in particular to end the few remaining state appeals to the Privy Council, which, you know, I, I, I always have to sort of remind myself that whilst it's still the case in some uh, several other Commonwealth countries, it is extraordinary for us with a fully functioning legal system that in 1970, up until 1986, there were still some states that could appeal the decisions of their state supreme courts to, as Gough said, a, uh, Gough Whitlam said, a, a, a court made up of judges um, in place in another country ruling on our law. And it's, you know, it's, it's really a stark reminder of just how incomplete that process of severance was. But nothing but obstruction mm -hmm. um, from uh, the British authorities over that time period. It was still 
on the agenda when Whitlam was dismissed, mm. of course, by the Queen's representative mm. in Australia three years later. But so, uh, you know, I do look at, at, at the fact of the Commonwealth and the related fact of these sort of ongoing tentacles, if, if you like, of post-imperial um, uh, soft power, you might call it, that um, there are really significant things that, that, that still are there and, and, and that, that affect us as a result of those lingering relics of colonialism. I mean, we've talked a lot already tonight about almost what seems to be a benign, ineffectual body in the Commonwealth and the related sense in which imperial power continues throughout our aspects of our, of our governance. And yet I would say that there are pockets of that that are actually are not benign mm -hmm. and that have had very significant impact on us. The major one, of course, is the dismissal of the Whitlam government in 1975 by the Queen's representative on the basis of something called reserve powers, which um, many legal authorities dispute even exists. Certainly the Solicitor General and the Attorney General at the time disputed that it either existed or was relevant to the circumstance that Kerr and Whitlam were facing at the time. But I think that the way I look at the existence of Commonwealth, but also the same mindset playing through the bureaucracy in Britain at the time, was that it gave, it breathed life into something that, that, that many thought was, mm. was, was, uh, had fallen into disuse, into desuetude is the legal term, no longer viable, no longer applicable to Australia. That is the use of the reserve powers. So wherever these, mm. these things are not completely severed, and I've come more to this view in recent years, that we do need a final point mm. of severance, because whilst ever that's not complete, these pockets of unknown residual power remain. And we might come later to one of the other aspects of this, which you mentioned, which is the federal court case I have at the moment, trying to get access to letters between the Queen and the Governor-General at the time of the dismissal, which are embargoed on the instructions of the Queen. So even to this day, we have mm. some small areas, but I think important areas, mm. that mm. are still beholden to that relationship, even though we see that relationship as pretty much gone. Can I, can I just um, test something there? Um, is, your, is your concern about the Australian relationship with Britain or the Commonwealth, and, do you, and um, how, how do you distinguish between that? Would you see us getting out of the Commonwealth as a way of helping, helping that, or is it an entirely different uh, strand of decisions that have to be made? I think they're obviously related but different. And I take your point because I, I was contemplating this very question earlier today. And I, th I think that what troubles me about the continuation of a notion of Commonwealth are all of the, if you like, imperial mindset that goes with that. And I think it's impossible to do away with that. Mm -hmm. As you said also, this is the only thing that on one level binds the varied member states, is the sense in which we have come from an imperial past. But so long as we're in that body, it's not entirely an imperial past. Um, and, and I think that has dangers in the way in which it continues the lingering imperial relationship. So it's related to that. The more immediate things I think that we need to do are different, and they are to do with mm. the structural relationship of us with Britain. So yes, they're different things, but I think they reflect a, mm. a similar area that that I do find increasingly troubling. And I, I've never really pitched myself as quite strongly Republican, but I have to say in the last, that might sound strange to <laughs> what I've written about, it just hasn't been something that's been at the forefront. 
of my mind, but I am more and more coming to the view that you can't have a complete severance and, uh, and, until we, we reach that step. And it's a mature step. It's what, as an autonomous sovereign nation, we should, we should embrace and we should see as an opportunity. Mm. And it's what most Australians have wanted easily for the last 30 years. So mm. I do hope we get there. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, like the, the foreign... I mean, I think you're quite right. I mean, there is a distinction that needs to be teased out between the Commonwealth as a sort of self-regulating body of countries and that, that have some connection to an imperial past, or not all of them to a British past even, um, and, and then Britain itself. But, but you know, it is called the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. You know, it is still there as part of the sort of architecture of, of the way things are done in the UK. Um, so it's, it's, it's embedded in a, in a very practical sense as well, um, mm. which I think does set up another, another series of sorts of issues. Um, um, mm. yeah. One thing I was, I was very puzzled about reading your book is that the, the Queen has the embargo until 2027, 20, but her private secretary gets an indefinite embargo. How does that work? <laughs> so, Jenny, you might need to take people through the bit of the sort of background <laughs> of this. Um, the book to which uh, <laughs> Graham's referring is The Dismissal Dossier, Everything You Were Never Meant to Know About, November 1975, which I believe is for sale outside. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, the, these are, this is the embargo that's been placed on the letters between uh, the Queen or the Palace, we say more generally, because most of them, of course, are to her private secretary, Sir Martin Charteris, but some apparently are to the Queen. Um, the correspondence between the Palace and the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, they are embargoed on the instructions of the Queen, um, but this is, this, the, the, this is the embargo that... or the conditions with which Kerr himself placed on these letters. Um, the, the difficulty for, for us as researchers, and there's many researchers, obviously, who have wanted to have access to these le letters which are, which are in our own archives here in Canberra, but which we can't see because they're called personal records, not Commonwealth records. So because of the description by Kerr and the archives as of them as personal records, they don't come under the Archives Act, which only applies to Commonwealth records. So it's a catch-22 where we can't access them, the conditions are set, the conditions are set. Interestingly, originally the conditions set were that they're embargoed on the instructions of the Queen till 2037. So even though it's Kerr's conditions in terms of the Queen, after Kerr's death, the Queen reduced that term to 2027, and the, the, the continuing um, embargo that you speak of is actually her official secretary, uh, our official secretary, the Governor-General's official secretary, and the Queen's private secretary. Both have um, an ongoing veto over publication after that date. In other words, they can't be released until as early as 2027, but after that date, the Queen's private secretary or our Governor-General's official secretary, who usually takes the advice of the palace on such matters, can continue to exercise a veto. So yes, the, potentially that veto is indefinite. So the court case uh, was completed last September. Um, it was a relatively short court case um, and we're waiting now for that decision to come down from the federal court mm. with great interest. And any indication of when that might be? Well, no, except, no. except that, uh, you know, it could be any, could day, any day. And given yeah, the length yeah. of time that's come from last September, um, yes, we would expect it in the, in the near future, I hope. It, I mean, it's, it's that, that very particular case um, is interesting, but there have been lots of 
or other significant cases in the UK where, where archival records of British behaviour as, as part of the sort of empire have been destroyed or not been, not been available through the archives of the Foreign Commonwealth Office. Um, so that sort of record keeping and that ability to reconcile what actually went on as part of both the sort of the empire and then its dissolution is actually quite difficult for scholars you know, all over the world and for interested citizens of other countries. Oh, it, it's enormously significant. I mean, the, 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 the knowledge that we can have of our, of our history and our imperial and post-imperial relationships is, of course, bound up in what we can access as scholars and historians. And the situation that, that, that I'm facing here in terms of the, the palace letters pales utterly into insignificance uh, when you look at what the situation is in, in the UK what's being called their royal secrecy because it's so profound um, and, and, and unchallengeable um, is, is all pervasive. So their relationship, that is the royal family's relationship with the archives is quite different. The, the royal um, secrecy provisions extend to even going into archives and taking materials that have already been released and determining that they should in fact be part of the Royal Archives, which is almost impenetrable. And some of you will have seen, for example, Julia Baird's recent book on Queen Victoria, the struggle she faced to get records mm -hmm. of, you know, over a hundred years mm -hmm. old, because mm -hmm. they're still part of this Royal Archive, which is so difficult to penetrate. Um, and there's a, a wonderful example that you sent me, Julianne, about um, a really frightening example. You can fill in the bits because mm. I can't remember the specifics of a post-colonial experience of records being actively doctored mm. and files being removed and replaced by dummy files in order to hide atrocities that had been committed in the lead-up to full independence. And this is Kenya. a shocking... Sorry? In Kenya. Yes, in Kenya. And this is a shocking part of that colonial history, mm. and yet it's one that had been really vigorously hidden from public view, effectively through a doctored set of files. Mm. Um, and, and so this is where our knowledge, our understanding of our post-colonial and historical reality is really at the mercy of those who have control of the record. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very much a related aspect to the question of um, how we function as a commonwealth mm. and what sorts of rights and knowledge and having a knowledge base that is fair and proper and equal. Mm. And mm. it's very disturbing. That, mm. that piece was an extreme... It really disturbed me remarkably because it's, it's taking the sort of very small steps that we've taken here to another level altogether. Mm. Mm. So, Alan, you write in your book about, you know, the breaking of those ties with, with Britain um, and that discovering of a place here or discovering or the building of a closer relationship with the US and then the discovering of the closer ties in this region. Um, I'm just wondering whether you agree with Jenny about the need for a for a more substantial break in a sense with those those British ties um, mm. um, as mm. part of a sort of uh, sort of national formation. Uh, look for, uh, Jenny has a particular and persuasive uh, set of uh, reasons why mm. Um, why she uh, thinks that from my perspective, which is one dealing with Australian foreign policy, mm. the reasons are diminished, mm. I think. that mm. um, It was striking, wasn't it, that if you read the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper, which came out in November, was mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. uh, 
not a single reference mm. to the to Commonwealth in it. But if you took any speech by any Australian Prime Minister or Foreign Minister from the 50s or 60s or 70s, the Commonwealth mm. would have had... There would always have been a mm. big structure. So I don't think it matters mm. so mm. much mm. in Australian, um, uh, Australian uh, foreign policy uh, now. It's... Um, it's a sort of a, it's, it's a, an irri irritation in in um, in some ways, um, but uh, but I don't think I don't think it matters enough for us mm. to uh, mm. to uh, worry about it. The reason I'm sort of slightly changing mm. my view on the uh, on the Commonwealth is that as the White Foreign Policy White Paper revealed, uh, I think the international order in which Australia has lived since the Second World War is now over. It's not mm -hmm. changing, it's not challenged, it's gone. Mm -hmm. And in this new environment, Australia is going to be able to rely much less heavily on traditional uh, friends and relationships, including Britain, which mm -hmm. will be weaker mm -hmm. after Brexit, and the United States, which whatever follows Donald Trump is going to be more removed mm -hmm. from the world, more concerned with its own um, <coughs> internal um, uh, issues uh, than with the outside uh, world. So in this new environment, Australia is going to work, have to work a hell of a lot harder to, um, to build relationships, to form coalitions, to ensure that the rules-based order, which, we've, which we um, have been able to support easily because mm. the rules have been set by us and our mates, mm. but they're not going to be able to, mm. going to do that anymore. So we're going to have... It's going to be a much more complex world. And so in this world, I wouldn't give away easily any particular mm -hmm. avenue for dealing with other mm -hmm. parts of the world, and the Commonwealth uh, does remain for Australia an easy point of entree to Africa, to the Caribbean, to bits of the world which have not been the preoccupation of sort of mainstream policy, but may well be uh, more useful now. So I don't think we should put any weight on the Commonwealth itself uh, suddenly becoming a, a, a vital international institution, but the, uh, the links that we have there um, uh, are should not be easily thrown away. Mm. Which is a good segue to, to you, Graham, because I mean one of the one of the things we're starting to see in, in, in these former Commonwealth countries is, is a much greater Chinese presence. You know, the whole Chinese movement into many of these countries which are former former colonies and formerly associated with, with the British Empire, there is a Chinese in very great great numbers doing a lot of stuff, spending a lot of money, you know, being involved in what you know, in one one project or another. So you see that in PNG, you see it in the Pacific. I mean we have people in the edition writing about the Chinese involvement in Africa as well. You know, it's 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 a global phenomenon. Um, I'm just interested in how you you know, taking Alan's point about the, you know that the changing world order, I and mean, that's obviously a, a code in some ways for the, for the rise of China. I mean, how you see that playing out in those in those former Commonwealth countries? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting on a number of levels. I mean, one as I've been listening to the discussion, one thing that's been um, coming back to me is that um, the Commonwealth isn't the only, um, if you like, amalgamation of countries bound by. Um, language and legal system and, and shared history. 
And China has been very active, um, for example, in cultivating the Luciferne um, countries, um, the Portuguese-speaking mm -hmm. countries. Uh, and in many ways, uh, we talk a similar language now. When we talk Australian diplomacy or Chinese diplomacy, DFAT has now set up a, I'm not exactly sure what the structural, uh, um, the final structure will be, but soft power mm -hmm. is now there on the organisational charts in mm -hmm. DFAT. Mm -hmm. we, we, we now have agencies that uh, have soft power as their main mission. Mm -hmm. And over the last two weeks in China, we've had this amazing, uh, literally on-the-go um, reconstruction of China's uh, engagement with the world. So as of today, um, some of you may know, but as of today, China now has an international aid agency. Mm -hmm just popped up in the last few hours. Mm -hmm. um, so literally this um, engagement with the world is, is, is forming in front of our eyes and it's quite fascinating. What I've observed in the Pacific and uh, to tie it back to the Commonwealth is that one of the Commonwealth's greatest problems or the empire's greatest problems was that its foot soldiers didn't necessarily share the lofty ideals that you will now see in Commonwealth documents. Its foot soldiers were there to make a buck. Mm -hmm. um, and this is uh, one problem that China will have to address is that there is a great deal of migration to Pacific countries. Um, in Tonga, for example, 4% of the population are, is are recent arrivals from mainland China. Uh, now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but in a population of, of 100,000 people, 4,000 Chinese shopkeepers mm -hmm. makes a hell of an impact. Mm -hmm. um, and it does not align with any of China's national strategic goals. Mm -hmm. So how they bring those th two things together, the natural, uh, if you like, impact to their economic power, but having a high-level foreign policy strategy that <laughs> in no way mm. matches up with the consequences of their, their growth. Mm. It's, I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm intrigued with with China, and, and I know there are some scholars have written in this area, which is to, to the lessons learnt from Chinese humiliation by the British essentially, mm. um, and then how that's being reinterpreted in the way it's behaving now, you know. So that there are lessons in a way of the, that have been learnt from um, effective empire building, um, of not, you know, necessarily going in with guns and, and, and soldiers blazing, but, mm. but other ways of exercising power and influence, um, which th th to some degree there are templates taken from, from the way the British Empire operated for a long period. I, I guess it would always come back to your theories of parenthood, you know, mm. do, do, does an abused child, uh, you know, uh, go, go out and, and behave responsibly mm. or, or do they repeat the mistakes that were inflicted upon them? Um, and that's, that's a, a, a whole realm of things you can look at because it wasn't just the British that humiliated them, mm. of course. It was pretty well everyone. Mm. Uh, I even we get a footnote in the Box of Rebellion as having been present for that. Uh, but generally we're not viewed as a, a colonial force, so that... that not that the relationship is in great shape at the moment, but that mm. at least is not an, not an irritant. Um, I mean, <laughs> to give it a concrete example, I recommend, uh, if you have a free $18, uh, to go out and see a movie called um, Operation Red Sea. And that will leave you with the impression that the mistakes of Empire have not been learnt. Uh, it is described by the South China Morning Post as not a terribly bellicose representation of Chinese nationalism. It is said to depict the evacuation of 250 Chinese citizens from Yemen. Uh, that is, I think, a realistic thing for the first 15 minutes of the movie. And the rest of it is a body count of 
however many Islamic-looking people you can kill uh, in the space of two hours, rounded off with a, a, a finishing scene of a Chinese flotilla blaring in Chinese and English, this is the South China Sea, turn around. Mm. And, and literally you go home going, oh my God, you know, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's coming for us. Mm. Well, it's, well, it was interesting that in the, you know, at the end of, um, in, well, 20 years ago, when, when um, the, the British left Hong Kong, you know, the, the mm. sort of one, one, what was the, the, the catchphrase? It was one, one, one country, two, two systems, systems. Um, which is now very much becoming um, one country, one system. Um, or 1.5, maybe. Yeah. Pardon? <laughs> or, or one and a half <laughs> systems. Yeah. watching it go down. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's sort of, it is interesting to see that, that transfer of, of power. I mean, it's obviously something that you've been watching for a long time, Alan. Yeah. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on that transfer of occurring? The transfer of occurring? Of power, but, you know, the, of relative power, how, how that might play out. In the common. No, no, in the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth, pushing the Commonwealth to a side of, of how that, that, that moved to a, you know, to a more Chinese-centric um, sort of power in its Oh, Look, I don't, I, I don't, um, isn't, can I just make an aside? Yeah. Isn't it interesting how hard it is to have a conversation about yeah. the Commonwealth because there's actually nothing, yeah. nothing there? <laughs> so you end up, <laughs> end up yeah. talking about China, which I'm, I'm um, uh, which I'm um, uh, happy to... Uh, uh, to do, I, um, I I don't see uh, us moving into a uh, a Sino-centric world. Nick Bisley from mm. uh, from La Trobe University, I think, makes a very useful distinction between a China-centred region, which he thinks this will mm. be, and a Sino-centric mm -hmm. uh, region, a sort of Middle Kingdom thing. Mm. There are, there are just too many other big players around, including India and Japan. Mm. And the United States, in some form, form or another, I think that will will um, <coughs> will prevent whatever whatever uh, ambitions Chinese uh, <laughs> filmmakers uh, have of coming to uh, to pass. So I, I, I don't uh, I don't see us moving now into a um <coughs> into a sort of um, you know imperial mm. uh, uh, Chinese region as the European imperial powers mm -hmm. have moved out. Can I just pick you up on that kind of out? It's difficult to talk about the Commonwealth because it's what are we talking about? And I think that's that that really gets to this very issue here. I mean, you you mentioned how the Commonwealth can play a positive role, and there are obviously areas that can play a positive role. And you mentioned, and we talked about, you know, the range of things that it can do in terms of connections and networks and so on. Um, however, it's in its makeup and the way in which it has structured itself that it actually can't do anything. You know, it doesn't have binding obligations, it doesn't have binding agreements that are required of members. And so what can it do as we move forward um, in its current guise? Or does it actually need to completely recast itself as a form of power block in order to have any, any real influence other than um, over the broadest possible, as you said yourself in your piece, uh, motherhood statements, Alan, which I, I thought was <laughs> such a powerful des description of how difficult it is for the Commonwealth to come out with anything mm. um, concrete, partly because, well, in, in particular, because of the almost accidental nature of the groupings within it. Um, and I had another point. 
did ask going to make it that that has now completely I mean, passed I think, me by. I think, to, I I think to be fair to to be fair to the um, to the, to the Commonwealth organisation that there has been a lot of work that's been done over the last few years. I mean, the, there've been a series of expert groups that have been put in to to examine how the Commonwealth works, whether it was relevant, and and the evidence was pretty much that people thought it was it was non you know it, it, it was it was a sort of an idea that lacked meaning in a sense. Um, so I think that the work that's been done as a result of the most recent um, expert working group has really been to try and and adjust that so that it actually has got very a very clear set of goals around sort of development and equity and climate and you know the sort of the, those sort of issues that are affecting the world but don't get talked about in a sort of really active sense. So I think they have very active programs around that, which is a difference from the old thing of it being a power plays of, you know, the Africans versus the Caribbeans versus the, the Asians. So I think that there's something quite interesting happening in that space. No, uh, no, 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 there's not really. <laughs> <laughs> it's the triumph of hope over experience. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you, if you go, go back yeah. and look at the number of times it's that people have said, there was something yeah. that can yeah. be done with yeah. the Commonwealth yeah. and we're going to, to do it and... And uh, senior officials group and eminent persons groups yeah, have yeah. been set up uh, to uh, to do it. And it, it, it does the laboratory of the I new, think, I think, yeah. is the phrase. An inordinate that amount used. of time trying to justify its existence. <laughs> but I remembered what I was going to point to, which is that the two. It seems to me that two of the most um, significant moments uh, we've mentioned. One, which is Brexit, um, and the other, depending on how it plays out, and it may in fact be the usual Trump. Uh, grandiose statements wound back fairly quickly, but, but the tariff decision he's just made is mm. really significant for world trade. And yet the Commonwealth, it seems to me, is powerless to actually mm. do anything about either of them. So that's where I look at where the world is going at the moment, with the need for very particular decisions to be made. And we're looking now at Europe is going to be making a stand against Trump's uh, tariff mm. decision. And, and we are left there unable to, to really make a stand and, and, one the, Commonwealth. and one of the things that's interesting, you know, that the, the hardheads in, who are in the Commonwealth groups, and the, I take your point about, you know, expert groups and working parties and all the rest, is that the, um, you know, the, 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 those who see a real value in it say you've got a third of the world's population. You know, you have a potential trading, trading network between those, that third of the world's population in the form of Commonwealth exercising some counterbalance. I mean, I'm not <laughs> arguing. I'm just telling you what, what is said as part <laughs> yeah. of that argument. So, yeah. so can, I, can I phrase it maybe yeah. another way? I guess my question is, why is it so useless? So why can you have the Lucifer countries actually forming a very effective block and, and being a group you can court as one and that have shared identities? And yet this larger entity that in theory should be more powerful than Lucifer group um, is actually less useful and it is not something that a country like China would look to engage with because mm. they're just asking, well, what's the point of engaging with the Commonwealth, you know? And is it partly about the relative, I mean, the hanging on of the power relatively at the centre? I mean, you know, is it Lisbon, you know, yeah. you don't think of as a global centre of any consequence, I mean, yeah. notwithstanding um, the head of the UN being Portuguese, but I mean, it's not, um, whereas London still, you know, represents itself as a major global centre. I mean, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, it maybe it is because they were reluctant, you know, or they talked themselves out of the colonial project, if you like, and so by the end, the colonial project was meaningless, whereas other countries still look very fondly and, and indeed quite covetously upon their former um, colonies. I mean, France, for example, we don't need to go far mm. in the Pacific to find bits of the Pacific that are still terribly French. Um, I wonder, yeah, I wonder, Jenny, whether, I mean, I think whether part of it is that... Um, 
point. Part of it is that in Britain, the deconstructing of the colonial experience has not happened. So just as you talk about the, mm. the, um, the reserve powers and the tendrils of empire here, I mean, I get the sense that, and the reason that you have foreign secretaries and others walking around talking about Empire 2.0 is that that work hasn't been done mm. in the mm. UK itself. Mm. It's the converse of what we're saying about our own incomplete yeah. severance, is that there needs to be severance from the other end. And and I think, you know, you've probably all seen the Commonwealth described as Britain's consolation prize for losing <laughs> empire, but it has to be more than that. And, it, you know, I think there's a lot of sense in what you say, that there, that there does have to be a moment where there is a, a, a willing and de desired shift from an empire mindset, and I don't think that's happened in Britain. And I think that part of the reason why it can be, life can be breathed back into that so quickly, and you will have seen Boris Johnson describe, um, you know, wanting, want, wanting to be an, an empire of minds, and this notion of empire is, is, is so central to, um, to so much British um, established thinking uh, in, in, in terms of governance that I think it still has a long way to go to complete that project. And I, I do wonder if that's why um, we're still seeing um, a Commonwealth that actually can't yet actually um, refashion itself. But also because it's just an amorphous group. The only reason for that group is that connection with Britain. There is nothing in that group that holds it together other than that. And I'm not saying that's not an important reason to exist um, as a group and to acknowledge its history and so on but also to recognise the really profound limitations over what it can then do. So it seems to me the only way we can move forward into the really constructive realm that Alan was suggesting it could play is to remake it completely. Mm. So I think we've got five minutes or so for questions. Is there anyone who'd like to ask a question? Yes, Bill. Oh, sorry, yes, please. until the 70s, probably the most conservative, you know, were pro-Empire, pro-UK part of Australia. But, and I go back frequently, uh, the day that they went to the common market and the day they destroyed by doing so the Tasmanian apple industry is something that was just absolutely pivotal in my childhood, but turned that state and those people forever against the perfidious nature of the of perfidious Albion and the idea that Tasmanians uh, Tasmanians still remember that is a very great betrayal of uh, of what might have been seen as implicitly involved in, in British leadership of the post-imperial situation the withdrawal from east of Suez was the was the other thing that happened in the 60s and f it was it was signed off by the dismissal when it could have been argued that if there was any meaning or moral purpose for the Commonwealth that the arrangements then uh, would would have prevailed and uh, it would have been reversed or wouldn't have happened or something like that. But that was the end of it, in my view. And it is just nonsensical for the British government, as presently constructed, to believe that these arrangements could be put back together in that state or they would be supported by the people, you know, uh, 20 and two generations later, it's mm -hmm. over.
Mm. That's that's really interesting, and it does it does show all the examples you raised do show the that on the ground, even though we have believed no doubt that we've shifted into an autonomous, independent, sovereign state, um, in terms of that relationship, that there are some really powerful residual connections that have great impact on ordinary people um, through the decisions made. And that particular decision, um, and there were many others during the 70s when Whitlam was trying to un unravel some of the immigration, for example, the privileges that actually applied um, to, to British people coming here and um, you know the shorter period before they could get a permanent residency and so on, trying to close them down and leave it an equal footing, created enormous upheaval in, in, in Britain. And the files are staggering in terms of the utter disrespect with which the government was, was treated. But I think, you know, you raise a really interesting question there about the, the response to the dismissal and where we talk about the, 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 what are the core values of the Commonwealth. It's often referred to as a, as a group that has key values at heart and one of them is responsible government and, de and democratic process. Well, this was a moment, as you say, where responsible government was denied, where the vote of a House of Representatives on the afternoon of the 11th of November was denied by the Governor-General. If ever there's a moment, as you say, where, where somebody as a, as a figurehead of democratic governance mm. might have pointed to the Governor-General and said, no, your Prime Minister is determined not by you, but by the House of Representatives, it would have been that. Mm. Mm. Do you have a question? So we are spot on seven o'clock. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry, sorry. There is one. one. Here. Okay, yeah. sorry. Okay. That's a bit like you spurned lover, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, Alan, um, I was thinking very carefully about your uh, shift from thinking that of the Commonwealth as completely and utterly useless from an Australian point of view to something that might, in current circumstances, potentially have a, uh, a, a net positive effect. Although I don't think you're giving it a very high value there, I think. Um, so what might Australia do through the Commonwealth realistically in this kind of post-Brexit, you know, uh, and, and thinking about its membership, you know, I mean, this highly problematic membership of the Commonwealth, it either consists of a large number uh, of its membership is very small and or remote, you know, St. Yeah. Lucia, Cyprus, Gambia, you know, or a, a handful of countries which are extremely important to us, New Zealand, uh, India, Canada, but, but they're so important to us that we wouldn't bother yeah. mediating our relationship with them through the Commonwealth. Yep. Uh, the ones that we can mediate a relationship with the Commonwealth, the very small states, we don't really need a relationship with it. So what feasibly could we do? Climate uh, change, maybe? Mm, well, yeah, well, <laughs> you, you just um, gave the only answer that I could possibly think of <laughs> to the uh, question uh, you, uh, you asked me. I, uh, uh, my, my point is that there are parts of the world with which Australia does not have intimate, the, the sort of intimate contacts that we have with the Commonwealth members in the, uh, in the Pacific and, uh, and uh, South, South Asia and so on. Um, uh, Africa is the biggest and most important of those. Africa is going to loom larger in Australia's future and the world's future uh, than, it, uh, than it has in the past, and it's a part of the world that we, are, we deal with ineffectively. 
for the uh, for the for the most part, and it, the simple fact that there are ties um, through through the Commonwealth to a number of uh, the important African states, and Australia has played a not inconsiderable uh, you know part in Africa through the Commonwealth. My other sort of defence mm. of the Commonwealth, and uh, I, I note that the um, uh, 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 DFAT is about to release the latest uh, series of documents in Australian uh, foreign policy in a couple of weeks, I think. It's going to be on Rhodesia in the... Uh, Australia and, and Rhodesia in the, the uh, 1960s and uh, 70s. That, that, mm. that period was a gen genuine Australian contribution by Whitlam, by Fraser and, uh, and, by, uh, and by Hawke to post-colonial uh, uh, development. So there, there are links there. And we're, my only point really is that this is a, you know, a, 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 an opening gambit for discussions with uh, countries that we don't otherwise have much in common with. Yes. I, th I think there's a different discussion to have, Carl, about the legacy of empire and the role of the Commonwealth. I think you, you, you're absolutely right about uh, about English and so on. Um, the cultural issue is when you're looking at the Commonwealth as a whole rather than a couple of uh, the countries in the Commonwealth. And, and, and certainly that was my experience as well in... in Talking to writers about contributing to this, you know that there was there was a there were there were shared issues, there were shared bits of history, there were shared ways of seeing the world, which were in opposition and in alignment with with that that legacy, that cultural legacy, um, which was quite tangible. I mean, and it was I mean I must say that as I was putting it together, it was sort of surprising that I would be speaking to somebody in you know, in the Caribbean, and they would have something which was, you know, echoing very much with what somebody was saying from, from other parts of the world, where you wouldn't have otherwise thought that there were those sorts of connections and issues. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating point, because one of the first stumbling blocks um, the Belt and Road Initiative has faced is, well, what if something goes wrong? 
who, which court hears it. And um, as soon as they set up these things called Belt and Road Courts, that were of course based in China and would be held in Chinese, um, immediately people's, if you like, trust in the venture nosedive because they're like, well, you know, we, we know who's going to win in those court cases. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot to what you say, even if it doesn't apply directly to the Commonwealth as it is now, but that may just be a reflection of the, the uselessness of the Commonwealth. <laughs> if there are no more questions, I hope Julianne and our speakers will allow me to close the session um, and to thank you once again for coming along tonight and to thank again Julianne, Alan, Jenny and Graham for a really interesting and, and wide-ranging discussion on the issues raised in Commonwealth Now. And um, I think the, the note on which we've ended really suggests that you must go and buy a copy. <laughs> and um, there is uh, a copy available in the National Library Bookshop, which is open tonight. Um, and I think we've also heard several other titles mentioned, which might be worth acquiring while you're there. And in case you need any further persuading, the bookshop is offering a 10% discount tonight. So you're in the right place at the right time. With that, I will wish you all a very good evening and hope we'll see you back at the library again very soon. And uh, a final thank you to our speakers tonight. Thank you.